You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This episode is presented by John Jacob. This year's Association of British Orchestras Conference held in Glasgow in February 2022. The annual get-together of musicians, managers and marketers Gillian Moore, Director of Classical Music at London Southbank, chairs a discussion with author Darren McGarvey about his new book, Poverty Safari, Understanding the Anger of Britain's Underclass. For this podcast, recorded on the 8th of February 2022, Gillian explores her upbringing, the way in which music played such an important part of her life and how it shaped her subsequent career. Hers is a powerful story that shapes a view that is simple to explain. Music is a discipline that is relevant for everyone and is present in everybody's lives. It is a discipline that stays with you for the whole of your life, regardless of whether you're a participant or a listener. How then do we go about honouring her experience and reinstating music's place in future lives? Some of Gillian's story may well hold some clues as to what we all need to do. So I'm going up to my hometown of Glasgow, which I'm so pleased about. Um, the ABO uh, is coming to Glasgow, and um, I'm going to be uh, chairing a discussion after the opening keynote by the writer Darren McGarvey, and it's about classical music and class, as in social class. Um, and I'm really interested in this subject, so I'm looking forward to it. What exercises you about this particular subject? So I'm very aware of the um, chasm in opportunity according to accident of birth. You know, where you were born, what kind of family you were born into, um, gender, race, um, all of those things which um, predetermine, unfortunately, uh, how well you might do in life or what you might do in life. Um, this very much applies to the arts. Um, and my particular area of interest is classical music because that's uh, what I've grown up in. That's my passion. Um, and I've got, I think, a, quite a lot of personal um, passion about thinking about this subject. Um, I guess the reason I'm particularly interested in this is my own background, which I can talk about in a moment. Um, but also the fact that I notice um, that there are no, there doesn't seem to be an improvement, in fact, possibly the opposite in terms of opportunities available uh, to young people to get involved in something which has certainly changed my life um, and I think has the potential to change other people's lives, which is becoming involved in music as an active participant, as a listener, as a performer, as a composer or a writer, um, just being involved in the extraordinary richness of an active musical life. Um, so I see currently um, very little change, or in some cases changes for the worse, in um, the participation of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds in classical music. That applies to education. So our conservatoires in London, for example, have um, some of the highest proportion of um, young people who have attended private schools, um, I think is high or if not higher in some cases than Oxford and Cambridge. Um, our national youth ensembles 
who try really hard, you know, I'm not, they really work hard to change this and they, and I hope they will be successful, but, you know, they hugely disproportionately um, involve or are, are, are populated by young people who go to private schools. I realise that um, independent education is not a sole indicator of social class, but it's a pretty powerful one. Um, and then I think back to just my own background, my own family life. Um, and I do wonder, I'm in my uh, early 60s now, um, and I grew up, I was a, ch a child in the 1960s and a teenager in, into the 1970s. Um, and I wonder if someone like me would be able to be in a job like this in the future, you know, would be able to sort of have the trajectory that I've had in my musical life. So um, I was born in the East End of Glasgow. Uh, and when I was 18 months old, my family was, I guess, uh, spewed out of Glasgow in, uh, in something that was called the Glasgow Overspill. Um, so we were sent out to actually a really lovely, pleasant council estate um, in uh, a town about 18 miles away, I think, uh, called Johnston. It was in green fields. It was, you know, brand spanking new uh, council flats. Um, subsequently became, you know, really run down and in fact have now, are now pulled down. Um, but we, I had a kind of family life which, in which the arts were really important. My mum had, my, mom, my parents had both grown up in the East End of Glasgow. My mum had been involved in young people's theatre at the Citizens Theatre um, and always went to opera and ballet uh, with her when she was a young girl with her wages from her clerical job. And my dad um, came from a family where, um, again, from the East End, but again, where um, amateur music making was really important. There was a piano in there, um, tenement. Uh, it wasn't a horrible tenement. It was quite a nice tenement. Uh, the actor Bill Patterson, in fact, uh, grew up in the same block. Um, and uh, the actor, uh, sorry, writer and painter Alistair Gray um, lived down the road. And of course, Lulu was born. This is Denison I'm talking about. Lulu was born and grew up in Denison. Great place. But my dad's family were all, a lot of them in the generation above him had been um, members of the Glasgow Orpheus Choir. I don't know if you know about the Glasgow Orpheus Choir, but in the 1930s, 1920s and 30s, it was founded by uh, Hugh Roberton, who was a sort of socialist, um, social, uh, I guess, social activist, um, a pacifist, and he was determined to make um, music making available at the highest level to working people. It was very much part of that, you know, working people and the arts. Um, early 20th century movement. Um, they met at something called Toynbee Hall in the East End of Glasgow. The Toynbee organisation, obviously, really important in that in the East End of London as well. Um, and the Glasgow Office Choir, they became kind of world superstars. Um, they toured America. They had best-selling records. They had impeccable high standards of music making. They gave rise to a whole network of training choirs and youth choirs. It was like a kind of you know, we think this is all a contemporary idea, but it was absolute, this was happening in Glasgow in the 1920s and 30s. And my great aunts and the uncles were part of it. Um, and it was you know, spoken about very proudly. And we had a few old 78s, all in the April evening was their biggest hits. We had a whole 78 of that. 
and uh, Rutland Boughton's um, The Immortal Hour, you know, that opera from, I think, the 1920s, which was, again, a huge hit that's never done now. They they produced a sort of best-selling um, hit of that, The Fairy Song, it's called. Um, absolutely glorious. Um, so that kind of music-making... It was that thing when in my family where you know we had we had inherited um, a piano from one of those great uncles who was in the Orpheus Choir, an upright piano, a nice Broadwood, um, and there was that thing. It sounds horribly sentimental, but you know pe- you would gather around the piano when anybody visited. Everybody had to do their turn, no matter how proficient or otherwise. And there were wide discrepancies, believe me. Um, everybody had to do their turn. And that's, you know, my dad, I'm going up to see him this week. He's um, 87 and he's sadly in the final stages of dementia and he's in a nursing home. But he, you know, that path for him was really important. Um, We still communicate through music because I used to play the piano for him. um, And he uh, went from being a sort of church choir singer. He could barely read music. He couldn't really read music. And then because the... RSNO chorus um, was short of tenors. This is in the 70s. He found himself um, getting in to that amazing choir and he did extraordinary things. And he sang, you know, he sang on, there's a great recording of um, Dreamer Gerontius with Alexander Gibson from Paisley Abbey. I was actually at that, those recording sessions. Um, he sang with Boulez at the proms, Malarate. Remember, we all came down to London for that. Um, and um, I had to coach him because he could barely read music, and I was like, I was learning the piano, so I was co- so I have an unhealthily detailed knowledge of the tenor parts of the great um, choral Un- repertoire. Unhealthily, yeah. unhealthily detailed. Yeah. I would hear the tenor parts, <laughs> you know, Beethoven nine or Mahler eight or Dream of Gerontius or whatever. I hear the Brahms Requiem. I hear the tenor parts. Um, so that, and my dad used to say to me. You know, my grandma used to play the piano really nicely as well, his mum. And she could play, you know, she could play a Schubert impromptu. And she was probably the, until I, until I really, you know, I was the first person to do any of it in any kind of professional huh. setting. I mean, apart from obviously my dad as an amateur going into the professional uh, sector with the, the chorus. Um, but my grandma could play Schubert. And my dad would say, what, don't talk to me about classical music being elitist. You know, we were singing Schubert songs in our council houses, and that's absolutely true. Sounds horribly sentimental. I know what it will come over like, but it was true. It's my experience. But what, um, what was it about the qualities of your parents? Because I do think it's... I, I'm not denying the class element at all, but I'm wondering what the qualities of your parents were. I, I, I sense curiosity and an appetite for music that perhaps yeah. was... Um, specific to your family was that reflected in other people's families that you observed well they were I guess you could say they were aspirational Um, I um, I remember though um, because I went to a school we we, we then moved to Lanarkshire and my secondary schooling was you know really quite tough it was an ex-mining village and, um, you know, a girl who liked classical music and reading Jane Austen didn't go down very well. And I got quite, quite badly bullied at first oh. until I found a little gang. Right. Um, and we're still friends now um, who, you know, I guess had similar parents. They did have similar parents. Um, and 
uh, as I say, we're still friends. We still meet up now. Um, but uh, when I went, <coughs> the big thing for me was going to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama um, on a Saturday uh, from the age of 13. And that was my, that was where I really found my tribe. Um, so I found similar young people and, you know, mostly from similar backgrounds, if I'm honest. So we'd, you know, I've got this image in my head of us, of a gang of us standing on the front steps of the old building of the Royal Academy in St George's uh, Place um, in the centre of Glasgow. And, you know, I think all of us were from that kind of background. So there's, there's me and then there's, and I've gone on to do what I've done. And then there's another friend who went on to, well, he became a, you know, really great violin, fantastic orchestral violinist and toured the world in a great chamber orchestra and now runs a junior conservatoire. Um, there's another friend who became, who's from a similar background, who became the director of culture for a major city. And then there was another who plays a cello, who's, you know, one of our best known cellists and um, conducts. And, so when you when you look back on that time, so I pick up aspiration because you've told me aspiration, and now you're talking about that group of friends. When you look back on that time, and I know it's with hindsight, did you did you sense a, a different kind of energy amongst you, or was it, or was it just fairly every day? This was this was just something that you wanted to do, and these were your friends. And I think we all influenced each other. I I can't say it was every day because it was magic for me going there on a Saturday. It really was. It was like. Um, it it was what I'd because when I was earlier on, I, you know, I was having I did have piano lessons and I'd get my grade books and I'd look at the, you know, I sort of memorised all the addresses of the colleges and you know the conservatoires around you know the the Royal Schools of Music, um, and and the front of the Associated Board and it was just like a magical world that I would you know just dreamed of being involved in so when I finally got to go there at 13 it was just magical and it still felt like that and I had wonderful teaching there really wonderful teaching and I think we did all influence each other so does that Um, suggest then that aspiration is confused with elitism because I do I do recognize when you're talking about Saturday morning schools for example uh you know we're a different age but I'm I like the idea of the, the aspirational elements in print and in different locations and, and it's sort of establishing a path that you might want to follow. I wonder whether then people confuse aspiration with elitism. I think this, I was lucky in, a, in two factors and I guess those of my friends from similar backgrounds who did similar things were also lucky. My parents knew that they wanted to, I mean, they were totally unpushy and they were completely, you know, compared with the generation now, including myself, you know, when you're expected to sort of know what your kids have got for homework, etc. They, they left me to my own devices, but they just wanted to enable what I wanted to do. And they knew that there were, they knew um, that there could be other things. They didn't precisely know what those were. Um, they needed other people to help them, guide them. So we another, another piece of luck was that there was a, um, in my primary school, um, there was a, a music teacher, which I guess isn't, doesn't happen that much now, part-time music teacher who um, was a, 
also became a friend of the family, partly because she um, took an interest in me. And actually, she pointed my dad in the direction of the SNL chorus. That's how that happened as well. And I'm still in touch with her. And I managed to write and thank her recently. I just thought, I'm going to thank her before she dies. Um, and she uh, said that I should go to the academy at Saturday morning school. And I don't know if my parents really knew that that existed or how to do that, but she had gone there and she knew about it. So she uh, suggested that. So you do need a bit of luck um, and that's not helpful because not everybody has luck. So um, what I say now is that, I mean, the other thing that we had then is, you know, youth orchestras um, and free and so I went, I then went on to play the clarinet very badly. Piano was my thing. I played the piano pretty well. Um, and I really worked hard at it. Clarinet was the other thing I did in order to get the experience of an orchestra. There was a county youth orchestra. There were free instrumental lessons on the clarinet. I did manage to do that and that was exciting. So those opportunities existed and I think they're more patchwork now, mm. um, but they do exist. They still exist, but it's, um, I mean, it, it, it really troubles me that in a major world city such as London, there is not a unified approach to across the city to music education to to instrumental teaching and which there, there was when I came to London there was the ILEA so this is all the old days but when I came to London there was the ILEA um, abolished by Margaret Thatcher as a political act um, so that each uh, local authority becomes its own fiefdom but music music training is one thing you can't do in little small areas um, you have to have you know, you have to have some great, you know, brass teaching, which can go across. You have to have a great youth orchestra. You have to, you have to have a London-wide, um, I would say, publicly funded uh, structure. And that does not exist in London anymore. Um, it does not exist in London. So that, for me, is pretty scandalous. I did have access to that um, when I was growing up. Um, I also... Uh, I'm concerned that, um, you know, like lots of people, and I would, this is, you know, obviously I would say this, wouldn't I? But um, the focus, I'm all for science and technology, I really am. And one of my regrets about my education is that, you know, I'm the product of the two cultures, and I, I had a fear of maths and science from an early age, um, and I rejected it at the earliest possible um, stage. I, I really regret that, and I think it should be part of a rounded education, but you need to, I think you need to see the arts, as of course it has been historically. Music as part of that, it's part of the humanities and sciences, as part of a rounded education, and it's not a waste of time. Mm. And, you know, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, uh, it's a huge contributor to the economy and uh, jobs, um, and uh, to, to say that an arts education, and particularly I would say a music education, which, you know, people go into all sorts of, of uh, professions from music, including, you know, financial industries and sometimes even science and other walks of life, eminently transferable skills, social skills, organisational skills, self-discipline, hard work, and physical, you know, physical training. I'm concerned that, this is not available uh, 
more you know, it's not sort of available in an easily graspable way and that everything has been broken up into you know small fiefdoms uh given given where you are now and given where you've come from that which you've explained so far do you clearly you feel disappointed you feel exercised do you feel angry about the situation um I do sometimes. My husband's teaching in an inner city uh, secondary school at the moment. And he's come back and said, he's teaching 11 year olds. And he's saying, you know, there's several of them that I'm teaching who could just go all the way. They could really go all the way. They've, they've absolutely got it in them. They're really interested. Which is, of course, part of it because talent and hard work. You know, it's probably I don't know what the, but you know, it's not it's not just a, talent's part of it, but it's only part of it. Um, having the excitement and the aptitude to really work hard and put in the ten thousand hours is obviously a very important other part of it. But you know, they just will have. They have many more barriers. And it does that does make me angry, um, but it's got to be anger that turns into action. So, you know, in different ways, I've tried to take action, but I I probably need to do, to focus more on that now, because, you know, I've not got forever to keep working, so. What action have you, can you give me examples of the action you've taken? Well, the first part of my um, 10 years, or more than that, 13 years of my working life was, um, bringing, was doing creative work in schools and prisons with the London Symphony um, and then I did some work on in that field here at South Bank um, and that was really about opening it up to young people and showing them what's possible um, and I think in those days there still were more routes available um, what we weren't doing, the, the weakness of what we were doing then was, you know, helping create ongoing opportunity, the pathway, as you would call it now in the, today's terminology. Um, but uh, there was more of that available then. I'm talking about the 80s and into the 90s. Because we did lots of what we called creative composition-based work. So most of it was the way into music is to start with what you want to say and make your own. And we did a, a huge amount we with you know amazing people like George Benjamin, Mark Anthony Turnage, Judith Weir, and Nigel Osborne was the absolutely extraordinary. We were working with people and saying, look, you can make your own music and actually at that point saying your own technique doesn't need to be a barrier to musical expression. You know, I don't know if you're aware of the work of John Painter, the great music educator who taught me a bit at York University. And I, I went to Glasgow University and then I went to York University as a postgraduate. And he was, you know, wrote these books in the 60s and 70s about putting music in the classroom on an equal basis to any other subject. So along with Peter Maxwell Davis, he was saying, you know, in, a, in an English lesson, you write a poem or write a story. In an art lesson, you paint a picture. In a music lesson, you need to be able to make your own realize your own ideas 
um, and that is much more accessible. Uh, it's more accessible even than playing the recorder, I'd say, because you're actually um, allowing people to come in at their own level. And we were able to do that so phenomenally successfully, I think, with anybody. Um, you know, we'd go into Holloway Prison and within a morning, we'd have a big piece of music that everybody created together. You know, very, it was very disciplined, very structured. It wasn't like, hey, you know, it wasn't any of that. It was really disciplined and structured. And sometimes we were working with, you know, messy on modes of limited transposition or kind of Schoenberg motivic cells. That was, I mean, I've written a lot about this actually. Um, but, you know, I remember, you know, what Schoenberg motivic cells, we did a project on Pierre Lunaire with Richard McNichol. He was the other person, a great music educator. He's not a composer. He was, he was the second foot in the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And then he did this full time. Um, and we got these primary kids, Linda Hurst and Lund Sivnieta were playing Pierre Lunaire in their primary school. Can you believe it? Um, and we got them working with those little motivic cells that Schoenberg used. Um, up, so got them all set up on their xylophones. Um, these four notes, that's all you've got. You can play them forwards, backwards, upside down, or upside down and backwards. Um, that's exactly all that Schoenberg does. And then here's the poem. Um, how do you want to speak or sing it over the top of this or with this? Make this piece. You've got, you know, and we were, you know, we helped them. Uh, but it's that kind of authentic engagement, and then we play them the music. That was what we did then, and that was terrific. It was really terrific. Was I terrific. remember, oh. I remember doing similar things in my school. I have to tell you, I went through the independent sector. Obviously, I didn't choose that. My parents yeah. did, but um, uh, I remember doing class music lessons doing a similar kind of thing you know grabbing an instrument whatever was in the box and and doing stuff and I remember because I had piano lessons and clarinet lessons that I found those class music lessons actually really challenging because it's like well I haven't got any music and there's no there's no structure here and that, that this is not what there's, the ABRSM are not doing this so I don't I don't I don't understand but but that was a that was a common class activity that was it yeah. has to have been otherwise you know you're talking about it and i remember experiencing it i mean it was it was really it was really interesting because in fact we did work with some you know we worked with nyo kids and you know some really skilled musicians sometimes um in the same way but you know the really exciting moments when you were working with people who had very little or no um facility on instruments and you could you, know, you could work with percussion you could work with voices you could work with bodies um but it was very very disciplined work um and very structured and i just loved that but the um i think there's less of that now um there's so, still some of it um but i you know when my kids went through gcse composition um and a level music so much more uh, traditional what they were being asked to do and that was quite disappointing for me what action has um, to happen next do you think um i i really want to see music um as a creative discipline and I, and i mean that in, i mean that in the two you know strongly discipline in both senses of the word senses of the word not just a subject to be taught but something that is rigorous but creativity can be utterly rigorous um, and I want. I also want. Um, I also want to see um, a commitment to music as um, 
you know, everybody argues their own patch, but I'm going to I'm going to continue to argue the patch of music um, as something which is um, thoroughly useful to um, slightly plagiarise your uh, title. <laughs> I like um, no, I like the idea. The thoroughly useful part, better um, than better than really useful theatre company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thoroughly useful for all sorts of development, and it's something that stays with you for whole of your life. So just to come back to my dad, who I mentioned earlier, really the only way I can communicate with him now is with music. I've got a playlist, which when I visit him, of his the songs we used to do together, or things that he used to sing in the SNL chorus. Um, and then, but when, when I, you know, he's, he's 500 miles away, so I can't visit him very often. I'm visiting next this week. Um, but he, when I can't visit him, I play the piano over the phone or on the Zoom call. And, you know, again, songs, and he'll come in with, you know, the right note in the right time at the right place. And the communication is really profound because it's a, he can't, he can barely speak now at all, but that's, that's what we, that's how we communicate now. And that is absolutely true. I am not exaggerating or saying, you know, I would, you know, again, I would say that wouldn't I, but it's, I promise you it's the truth. Um, and, uh, it's it's the one way. It's what I do. I just get over to the piano. I get the laptop on top of the piano, or I get the phone on the music stand, and I just play. My love is like a red red rose, and he'll sing. You know, he can't really. He has no physical strength or vocal strength, but he'll suddenly come out with a high C at the right moment in the right key, at the, in the right at the right pitch, um, and that's that's something that's you know we've got together. He and I have got together. Um, and I'm really grateful. If for you're it. wanting to create music, if you're wanting to re-establish music as a creative discipline and get get a commitment to music being thoroughly useful, what do you need? What do you need to do next in order to get closer to those two goals? Um. Well, in my current role, I need to make sure that everything we do here, well, not everything, that we provide a sufficient range at the South Bank Centre, in a major arts centre, of uh, performances and opportunities to perform, which goes across the widest possible range of uh, people, not not just the people who know about it and will come and know what they want, and that's really vitally important. You know, really, you know, core audience people who are so loyal and come and love it. And um, but there's also the people who don't come. What do we need to do to encourage them to come? Uh, to provide something which is enticing enough. So we're really focused at the moment in the classical program here of. Saying yes, the you know the concert at seven thirty with you know Mitsuko Ushida we had on Saturday night, um, it's the most glorious thing. I love that. You know, I people like me and you love that, and will come and know how to find it and know how to buy a ticket and and that's but that's so much the core of what all classical music institutions do, and I've been part of that. But we need to make sure that we provide actually put, I would say, equal energy. Um, and I don't think I'm there yet, or 
any of my colleagues here or in other venues are there yet, of putting equal energy into providing for the people who don't know how to, don't know who Mitsukoushita is and don't um, know how to book a ticket necessarily. So one thing we're doing at the moment is making sure we've got more family concerts, making sure we've got more concerts for first-time attenders and making sure we've got more you know, new music and new work that appeals to perhaps a different crowd who are interested in stuff which is more edgy. And I mean, we've done that, obviously we've done that for a long time, but just, just being more uh, considered about that and how we use our budgets. Personally, I'd like to get more involved again in more directly in music education. I haven't been directly involved for a long time and I would like to just, I don't quite know how, but I would like to get more involved personally. What should the, What should the rest of us be doing, do you think? What can the rest of us do in order to, to get closer to those two goals that you articulated? What do people like me have to be doing? I think people who write and comment on music should really look as widely as possible. Um, I'm the vast majority of commentary. I mean, when I said resources go into um, for those you know connoisseur audiences. And please don't misunderstand me. This is, you know, I am not undervaluing those audiences because I'm part of that, you're part of that. Mm. Um, and I'm, you know, very glad to be part of that. Um, but I think I would love to see commentary on music being, just being wider and valuing a wider spectrum of experience. So, you know, really looking at what are the brilliant community projects um, what are the brilliant things that are really changing the landscape? Um, and, you know, that includes criticism. Change the discourse about about music. Also make, you know, just demand, just make demand, demands, shout more loudly about the fact that there are, they, you know, there they really are um, huge disparities still in our music education institutions and our youth ensembles in our audiences who come to venues like the South Bank Centre to experience classical music in the people that are on stage. Let's keep talking about that and not get fed up with it. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast presented by John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore good on Instagram and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on any half-decent podcast platform like Google or Amazon, plus some others you might not have heard of.